0: Good day, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragin, here on the Nachum Segal Network, dot org. Welcome to another Thursday of Political Talk. Here on the Premier Jewish Network, and we are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman Public Relations, Beckerman Public Affairs, building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman, beckermanpr.com. And as always, great show coming up for you, the listener out there, more political talk. but We're going to do a little inside Jewish political talk this week. Uh, we're going to discuss the President's Conference, the ins and outs of the President's Conference. That's the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. That is has a really long title, so they just go President's Conference or PressCon for short. And frequent guest on the Nachum Siegel JM and the AM is, of course, Malcolm Holmein, the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I'm not going to say that again. We're going to leave that aside. Anyway, as you may or may not know, and you probably do know, they rejected the application for membership of a group called J Street. And J Street is, of course, the pro-Israel, pro-peace, as they're self-described, Organizations. We're going to get some commentary on that. What happened? How it happened? Why they were rejected? We're going to have some people who actually may or may not have cast a vote, uh, in favor or may have, may not have cast a vote against. Although one of them, uh, certainly we know did write about why he casted a vote against the membership and we'll discuss the ins and outs. But, uh, first a little a couple of general political notes this week just, uh, to kind of get set and, you know, We talked about it, the fact that this year, midterm elections, why are these things so important? Well, control of the Senate is at stake. It seems that the House is going to stay in Republican hands, although you never know. And we've had guests on the show, and I've said it as well. The capacity for self-destruction amongst politicians is very strong, and that applies to both Democrats and Republicans. They do manage to hurt themselves. We have had recently a congressman Republican in Louisiana. Who decided that it would make sense to be caught on videotape doing inappropriate things with a staffer. We also have a congressman here in New York who is a Republican, also currently under indictment. And well, as I said, a lot can happen between now and then, but let's look at the Senate for a second. Cause there's some interesting analysis. The U.S. Senate up for grabs conventional wisdom right now. We're here in May elections in November. Convention of Wisdom is right now that there's going to be a little bit of a Republican wave. And there are lots of, a bunch of seats at stake. And, uh, one great analyst out there is Larry Sabado. He is a professor at the University of Virginia and he has a great little chart that I'm going to post out there on the Facebook and Twitter page just with regard to prognostications on the different states that might go. But I, I want to run through it a little bit uh, and I know you can't see it so I'm going to tell you about it the idea that what might change and what could, what could happen and he has scenarios that go anywhere from a Republican pickup a uh, Democratic pickup of plus one to a Republican pickup of plus 14 and uh, both are incredibly unlikely one is pretty much about zero that's the Democrats pickup plus one and that makes a 56-44. Remember, there are two independents in the Senate, and they both caucus with the Republicans. That's Bernie Sanders, the self-described socialist in Vermont, as well as Angus King, who is an independent, was an independent governor of the state of Maine. Something about New England that produces independents that caucus with the Democrats. And But in between, there are a number of states there that are certainly in play, and those being Arkansas, Alaska, Montana, Louisiana, South Dakota, West Virginia. And a number of those have kind of credible or possible outcomes that we could see the Republicans taking those seats. We could also see that the Democrats might actually keep some of those seats. And there are a whole bunch of scenarios whereby – the, cha- the Senate will change hands. A combination of all those, and some of those, and there's also Colorado, which is up there, that uh, where a very credible challenge is coming now for the uh, for Cory Gardner to the incumbent Mark Udall. And Colorado has been a purple state, which had long been red, had long been Republican, and has trended towards Obama. Recently, there have been a lot of changes, particularly in the growth around of the metropolitan areas around Denver, also growth in Latino population, which Republicans have not done an effective job of out, of doing outreach to. And what you have there, interestingly enough, that this Republicans have been energized by gun rights legislation, and this despite the gov- Colorado passed a very restrictive gun law or restrictive for the West, we'll put it that way, not quite as restrictive as we have here in New York, restrictive for the West. And then there was a huge backlash against it. And a number of state senators who voted for it on the Democratic side were recalled. And that's a, a device that they have in a lot of states whereby if you don't like your politician, you don't have to wait until election day to get rid of them. So Colorado potentially can be in play. And if you want to go for the full... Republican tidal wave, as he calls it, meaning that the Republicans secure four seats in Democratic-leaning states, meaning Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, and New Hampshire. That would give, in addition to the states that they're within striking distance, that gives them a plus 11. Then you're looking at a outcome of Democrats 44 and Republicans 56. And you're really going at that point... To a total flip of what we have right now. And then there's also the other, ste- the other seats that might be out there. You have to also assume that right now that Mitch McConnell is going to hold his seat in Kentucky, even though the polls are close there. I think most people expect that to happen, but you never know. He still has to beat back a primary and he's been looked pretty adept at doing that so far. So there are a lot of possibilities. And as, you know, as we go on, we are going to go ahead and. You know, do a more and more analysis of the Senate and more and more analysis of what needs to happen in order for the Senate to change hands. Of course, that's what we look at. That's what the most important thing is, you know, here as we get in the inside of politics. So I want to welcome to the show for the very first time Ami Eden, who is the editor-in-chief of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the Newswire service for the Jewish people. Previously, he had been at the Forward where he started the Jewish Daily Forward website and before that was at the Philadelphia Jewish Exponent. Ami, Eden, welcome to Spin Class.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Thanks for joining us. So, Ami, normally we discuss politics in its kind of, purist form, meaning elected official politics. But today, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the Jewish politics. We try and keep an eye on the Jewish situation. And who better to tell us about the ins and outs of something called the President's Conference than uh, the editor-in-chief of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. So Malcolm Holline is a known quantity for people on this network, for our listenership. But most people probably don't understand what the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, in fact, is so right. maybe help us out,
1: yeah, okay, so um and I think that's a good way to 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 frame it because there's really two um things going on, one is Malcolm and then the other is the conference of presidents, which is the entity that employs him, that he's the chief executive, and Malcolm, in his own right, is i you know if you if your listeners know him he's uh he's obviously a very effective, articulate spokesman and and defender of Jewish interests and 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 the safety and well-being of Israel, but part of what make you know, in addition to his sort of skills that he brings to the table, what what give him a platform is that he has this organization called the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, and what the conference is um, is a body of about fifty organizations, big small. Left wing, centrist, right wing, reform, conservative, orthodox, that come together and they attempt to forge consensus opinions about Israel and the Middle East. And so part of what makes Malcolm effective is that he is able to represent, you know, not, not that he is giving you his opinion, not that he's giving you the opinion of a random organization and its board members, but that he, when he meets with a foreign official or with a journalist or is meeting with a lawmaker, you know, he is representing a consensus opinion of the organized Jewish community. And it's a, it's a powerful thing. And, and really the, the organization started because, in, uh, I think you go back to the 1950s, you had White House officials who were basically saying, Well, well why are we getting, why are we getting peppered by, you know, all these different Jewish organizations? Like, can't you guys all sit down and, like, figure it out? And then come and, uh, you know, then come and bother us so I don't have to, like, listen to, you know, all these different groups. And, th- and that's sort of the, the genesis of it, but it's As definitely if, taken uh, a life of its own and really grown and, and, you know, again, especially under Malcolm's, uh, um, leadership really has become, has become a force.
0: As if all the other, all the Jewish organizations who are members of the President's Conference don't do their own advocacy.
1: Right. Many, right. I, I mean, many do, and many, many do in our, um, big, Many do and are irrelevant, and then many don't. You know, it's a mix. And so, and you know, and as the community has gotten more and more, um, pluralistic and, and divided over different issues, you know, it's, it's, it, it means that even as the conference is pushing a consensus opinion, members, depending on the issue from left or right, are lobbying we advocating an, an alternative position, right? So um, at certain points, if, if the conference had, you know, stepped forward and, um, you know, during disengagement and essentially lined up behind the government of Israel, you would have, a, you know, a group like ZOA, the Zionist Organization of America on the right, is still going to be critical of... Of, of that uh... Um, of, of the israeli policy even though the consensus opinion that emerged from the conference was in favor and then it happens on obviously on the other side as well where you know groups, some of the groups on the far left will um stake out their own individual positions that are different than the conference
0: so we're talking to Ami Eden, the editor-in-chief of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. We're talking about the President's Conference. That's the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I said I wasn't going to say that again, so that probably is going to hopefully be the last time. And what we're getting at is this incident that's happened over the past couple of weeks. I think it happened about 10 days ago, whereby J Street, the pro-Israel, self-described pro-Israel, pro-peace organization, was denied. Membership in the President's Conference. And if you look at the roster army and you look at who is a major American Jewish organization, that definition, it's really hard to make the case for some of these. I mean, some of these are well-known quantities, you know, yes. such as the American Jewish Committee, certainly APAC is well-known. And, right. uh, you know, you have the the religious movements aside, uh, you have the Orthodox Union, Reform, Conservative. You don't have a good at Israel, um, but you have others like the American Jewish Congress, which pretty much doesn't exist anymore. Um, right. It, it doesn't even have an organizational staff yet. There's still a member. Um, you have some that I've. Probably never heard of, and I find myself—you know—I'm pretty well versed, right? Um, so what? And, what? Some, and some of them aren't
1: really advocacy organizations in the way that others are. So, right. Yeah, I mean, you're, highest you're, doesn't. Some, and you're—you know—one of the things that has come up is the question of—you know—voting. You know, voting. Who has the votes and how many votes? So the reform movement, for example, is very upset because you know they're looking at it and saying we voted for J Street be in, and some little teeny group that can't vote, you know, that doesn't boast 900 synagogues with several hundred thousand members has the same vote as the, you know, the synagogue organization of the reform movement. And so that has certainly come up the question of, uh, you know, is, you know, every organization gets one vote, and you need two-thirds vote to get into the conference. So it really becomes, you know, a small a, a collection of small groups can, in theory, with very small membership, veto the will of, you know, a much you know much larger groups. And to be to be clear, J Street, I believe, did not even get the. Um, they didn't even get you know, a simple, simple majority. They didn't get a majority. But I'd still say if you broke down, you know, the, many of the groups that did support have more big groups, right? The conservative movement. And, and their member organiz, you know their various organizations, the reform movement and their various organizations, uh, the ADL, uh, you know it, it gets very confusing with the Jewish organizational soup, the alphabet soup. Something called the JCPA, which is another umbrella group like the conference that has a bunch of big organizations, and it also voted for J Street. So even though it lost, uh, you know the the organizational one vote per organization vote. If you looked at the membership of those organizations, you could make the argument that they had an overwhelming um, mandate to be included in the conference, but the rules are the rules and, you know, that's not the way it's structured right now.
0: Okay, so let's set the stage for a second because as we were, I was trying to kind of lead up to the vote itself and we, we kind of talked about it and we talked about J Street, but can we step back and talk about the politics, the internal politics surrounding J Street? Number one is, why does J Street want to be a member of the President's Conference? Uh, why does anybody want to be a member of the President's Conference? I mean, you talked about the idea that everybody, the community speaks with one voice, but if they're kind of avowedly taking a different tack on advocacy, meaning that, that why, if they, if they consider themselves the opposite or or at least an antidote to APAC. Why do they want to sit in the same tent? That's one question. And the other hand is, you know, why if they feel that if a lot of these members feel that the president's conference is unworkable, unwieldy, inefficient or anachronistic, why do they want to be a part of it? So right. maybe give us right. an idea about why it still has this allure and, right. uh, and, and go on.
1: Right. Sure. The um, the first thing I'd say about J Street is I think what your question leads to um, an interesting observation about what went down that wouldn't necessarily be apparent unless you really pay too much attention to all these issues. Which is when J Street came out of the gate, you know, part of it was they're talking about critiquing um, certain Israeli policies and and basically talking about the urgency for a two-state um solution and the idea that the US should play a much greater role in pressuring both sides to get there. Um, but really what I think even you know and that look that's any talk about US pressure is gonna rub people wrong, some people wrong. But I think when you look at the groups in the conference, what really got people upset is that that the way they came out of the gate was basically saying you have this establishment, the establishment's out of touch, the establishment doesn't really uh want peace. And we're you know, we um are 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 the real sort of like vanguard of what pro Israel should mean. And and you know, now I think there are I think it you know, it rubs you know rubs people the wrong way that so sort of like why why are you attacking us? Like on the one hand you're coming out and saying you know, that too often people, some people in the center and people on the right, beat up on the left because they have certain views and we should have a big tent. But at the same time, you're like slashing, you know, a bunch of different organizations and you're you're feeding this idea that, that um, you know, that the entire Jewish community is way to the right or that they don't care about peace. And now you're going to come around and say you want to be in the tent, like you want to be in our group, like why did you know why did you come out swinging at us like that? And so I think there was, you know, I think there's a way. I think part of this, I think on the right, there's some groups that would, you know, that they don't, they wouldn't want J Street in, period because they don't want, you know, they wouldn't want a left to group in if they could help it. But then I think there's a, I think there are other groups on the right and in the center. I weren't comfortable with the way j street sort of played with others and that's not a me and that is not unimportant because it is a consensus organization and you do want to feel like that there's some level of respect and I'm not saying there aren't you know there's certainly other groups in the conference who also rub people wrong they're already in the conference historically, so you know it is what it is and that j street why do they want to be in I think I think there's some people in J Street who it's important. I think, A, it's a self-view. They want to see themselves as mainstream. They don't want to be, you know, even if they think that the organization, even as they've criticized the organizational world for some way being out of step, they also have a part of them that wants to be seen as being legitimate, being part of the mainstream. On an emotional level, they want to be in it.
0: It's like the radical... There's a
1: practical reason, which is... If you, um, you know, if you're in the conference, then it does give you a certain, um, cloak of legitimacy that, you know, you, if you made it into the conference, you know, how outside the tent can you be? By definition, you're in the tent. I, you know, I wrote a piece on jca.org where I said, look, whether you like J Street or you don't like J Street, and even though they didn't get in the conference, If the reform movement says you belong in the Conference of Presidents and the conservative movement says you belong in the Conference of Presidents and the ADL says you belong in the Conference of Presidents, I don't care if you lost the vote. You're in the mainstream. You may not be in the Conference of Presidents. I'm not saying it is a value. I'm, I'm not saying you should be in the mainstream or you shouldn't. I'm saying definitionally, you are in the mainstream. So in that sense, I think there's a take that even in defeat, even in electoral defeat, they did get a level of that validation. By forcing the issue, they got a whole bunch of big players to come to their defense, even some of them who don't like the way they behave, right? But they said, look, I don't like the You know, I think Gabe Foxman of APL said, look, I don't like everything they do. Some things they do, like, really upset me. But do they belong in the conference? Yeah, they belong in the conference.
0: So it's interesting with regard to the reform movement, and I, I did notice looking at the the organizational list that it seems the reform movement has four votes within the Conference of Presidents although knowing organizations Jewish organizations just because they might say reform they might not be affiliated with one another I I couldn't really give those internal
1: they are you know and the movements are all different right so in the conservative movement the organizations in the reform and conservative movement all the organizations are independent in the reform movement there tends to be better coordination between the arms, but they inferior, independent, but they tend to be like-minded. I mean, you could think of it like the RCA. You know, for your you know listeners, if they're familiar with the orthodox world, the you know the RCA and the OU are they? You know, they're they're both independent organizations, but there's a lot of overlap between you know the people who are invested and care about and are stakeholders in each organization, and it's not surprising that you would often find the two of those organizations aligned on a lot of issues.
0: Right. So just with regard to the reform movement, Eric Yaffe, who was the previous head of the movement, or at least the synagogue arm, had been a critic of J Street, at least on some fronts. But, yes, the, but, but the new head, Rick Jacobs, seems to be an avowed supporter, and I believe he served on right. the rabbinic board. Which, Right,
1: but you right, right, a little conflict in that, of interest, in defense, perhaps. But not defensive, but in an explanation of, of Rabbi Yaffe, um he was certainly critical of j street and certain um, uh on, on certain tactical steps that they took in certain individual positions um, at the same time he obviously you know he is a big supporter of a two state solution he he early on even as he criticized them when other people were staying like staying clear of their annual conference he went to their annual conference and he you know Gave them some mussar, you know. He, he 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 told them why he had issues with them, but I certainly think he felt that that you know a group like them, if they conducted themselves a little differently, would be valuable. And and so I you know I wouldn't describe it as somehow he was at odds with the organization. But I think it's reflective. I mean, I think Rabbi Yaffe versus Rabbi Jacobs. Rabbi Yaffe is coming from an earlier generation where, um, you know, I think that there's. There's still a, a, a sense, a greater sense of the wider Jewish community, the value of some of these decades long institutions. You know, it's an interesting question. You said, why do these other groups want to be in? And, you know, Rabbi Jacobs has raised some serious questions about, you know, what is the value of staying in the conference if it's going to operate in a way, you know, where, you know, it, it's going to say it's representing the consensus view, but then. A group like reform movement feels it's not represented, so what's the value in staying? And I you know, and I think they kind of raise that specter, but it seems like they're going to push for reforms first. But I definitely think there's a – so I would caution against reading too much into the change when it comes to the political substance, but I definitely do think that, you know, as you see newer generations, younger generations, um, both on the left and the right, I think they're going to ask some – um you know, some they're gonna see the world differently. They're not always gonna see the value of, you know, a communal table versus their own individual um political agendas. If you go back yeah. when um Menachem Begin was elected prime minister, and I think it's hard for us to imagine now because Likud has really become the dominant you know, the Israeli political system is dominated by Likud and then people who are sort of Likud and left. Likud people don't realize that Begin spent uh, 30 like, years know, in people, opposition. You know, the labor dominated the country in an even more dramatic way for the you know the first um, you know 30, 30 years, years of the country when Begin won. In shock, it was Rabbi Schindler of the Reform movement who was then the president of the Conference of Presidents, who immediately went and met with Menachem Begin as sort of a signal that, um, you know, that, um, look, there was an election in Israel, and it may be a shock to us that, you know, this guy who was viewed as a right-wing boogeyman is now the head of what we thought of as our labor, you know, socialist, democratic country, but it's an election, and it's Israel. and And it was a very powerful signal to have the head of the reform movement come and sort of Say, you know, erase any question about how Diaspora Jew is going to view a, you know a demo, a, an earth-shattering democratic election in Israel like that.
0: Certainly, and we're talking to Ami Eden here, the editor-in-chief of the JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, here on Spin Class, sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman Public Relations, com. And you bring up so many good points there, and the limited amount of time, I, I really want to go through them. But most importantly is this generational thing, because that's been written about a lot. Recently, and the demographic changes as far as attachment to Israel, and I think the president's conference really concentrates on Israel as being a defining issue with regard to the Jewish polity, if you want to call it that. Right. And you know those those generational changes, and I perhaps a lot of people want to make the case, and I know that what's written about J Street, and there have been a couple you know long hand, long form articles written about J Street. And, one of them, I just recall with, uh, their head, Jeremy Ben-Ami, talks about the fact that we're the kind of people who go to Buddhist satyrs, and we're, you know, we're kind of all unaffiliated. Right. And right. that's, you know, that's who we're looking for, uh, as far as, you know, and perhaps is, you know, explain that a little bit to the audience, yeah. because, yeah, you yeah, know, we probably I have an affiliated I think group out been
1: there. It's important to understand, you know, that when you want to understand why Different types of people might be supportive of J Street, or might be upset by the signal that their defeat sends. It speaks to this because they look, they you know, if you look outside the Orthodox world, what are what are people who care about Israel seeing? You know, they they're seeing a community where you know different communities and different types of people who are more distant from Israel. You know, you have an Orthodox world where. Everybody's going to Yeshiva for a year, and people are very, very intertwined with Israel. And in the outside of the Orthodox world, you know, the trend in many ways is the opposite. And then you have a group like J Street that comes along, and for certain types of liberal Jews, it even as it's being critical of certain Israeli policies, it's given a framework in which liberal Jews who, you know, A, have... Some issues with their Jewishness, and they're figuring that out, and trying to figure out how they relate to Israel. There is sense giving them a way both to connect positively to Israel, but also that, and that's the theory. But all you know, why, why giving them away a way to voice their criticisms? And if you are a rabbi of a of a, a non Orthodox congregation or a, a Jewish leader, and you're looking at that next generation, you, you may say, look like yeah, it's not exactly the way I would do it. I may not like the, the criticism, but if we want to connect with, you know, the wider Jewish public, it's going to have to be on different terms, and you're going to have to give them, you have to give people spaces and ways to work through their, you know, the different questions they have about Israeli policy and and and, and the nature of the Jewish state. And, you know, and also... You know, there's been the argument that people have defended J Street has said, look, when it comes to certain divestment issues, divestment debates, a group like J J Street has gone into certain situations like the Presbyterians, for example, and fought hard against divestment. And, you know, and whether it's dealing with the Presbyterian church or with liberal Jews, you know, it's saying, look, now you have somebody defending the notion of a Jewish democratic state in Israel at a time when that you know when Zionism is, you know, in some quarters, you know, still under debate or Israel's legitimacy is being challenged, is it isn't it important to have people on the left who are willing to stand up and defend Israel on a top line level, even if we disagree with the settlements to say, look, you know, but we don't you know, we we proudly defend the right of the Jews to have their nation state in Israel and that Israel does incredible things. And so that's sort of the other side of the point that, 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 you know, that many people see.
0: An interesting point. I want to just ask with regard to the aftermath of, of it. J Street put out a press release that seemed to really directly attack and personally attack Malcolm Homeline. Instead of kind of, instead of really, I guess, talking about the President's Conference in general, they went to Malcolm.
1: I, look, I think. Look, I again. I wrote, you know, on JK.org. I wrote about this. I think they could have taken a different tack. But what they, in defeat, they basically validated the, some of the criticisms that are out there about them. Right? Even though, by every count that I have heard, you know, it was an open process, and Malcolm really was not involved in it in a big way. well really at all. Um, now, I can't say it all, not but my my sense is that it was very much you know the, the member organizations and the, and the leaders of, of of the organizations really ran this process and you know wasn't a Malcolm thing it was a organizational thing and you may not like the rules but the rules are the way they are and that's why J Street lost yet they went after Malcolm number one and number two they did it in a way like and this proves the conference is totally out of touch. I can only imagine, you know, they're not the first group to lose a vote, and there have been others who have lost a vote and then won. And I could, you know, I feel like if they had come out and said, we're really disappointed, we think the conference is important, we think Jewish cooperation is important, and we look forward to the day when we enter the conference Presidents and until then we'll continue to work with individual groups as we press for Jewish and democratic Israel and for the peace process. I think they would have you know I think they would have won some people over even in defeat instead you know i, I you know I've talked to people who are both frustrated with the conference or or, or with the members who didn't vote for them, but also frustrated with j three like why are you responding that way? can't you like this is exactly what's made it hard for us to you know fight for you because this is the way you choose to to engage. And again, I don't want to pick pick on J Street, and say, you know there are definitely other groups on you know you know like you know in the Jewish community, in the in, you know on the other side of the spectrum, who behave in similar ways, but they are already in the tent, <laughs> and then J Street is fighting to get in. Right, it's
0: always you always want to prove your behavior, and then you can kind of be a bad apple afterward. That's exactly. Uh, yeah, right. well certainly. Now, and, and just last question for you, uh, Ami, and we're talking with Ami Eden, the editor-in-chief of JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, and clearly if you haven't, if you're not currently a follower of Ami both on Twitter and on his daily email, you should be because you're getting great insight into the dynamics of the Jewish organizational world and so much more. Uh, but J Street versus APAC. And a lot of people will just kind of look at it as saying, okay, J Street is against APAC. If you're for APAC, you're against J Street, and vice versa. And that's also the perception of quite a few people on Capitol Hill uh, and that there's J Street and there's APAC. And if APAC doesn't like me, I can find cover with J Street and possibly vice versa. And right. I, I and there seems to be a perpetuation, I'm not saying each organization is actively promotes that, but behind the scenes that seems to be the case.
1: Well, okay, and I'm glad you asked me that because I was gonna I wanted to tell you that, you know, you mentioned that how usually you focus on politics on the show, and I do think there's a a politics element that makes J Street different from other than some of the other groups too. Um, and that is that J Street has its own pack um that, you know, that is affiliated. But and there are other organizations that, in the Jewish world that have such a thing, but the J, J Street really wears it on its sleeve. So, you know, some of the right wing groups are saying, Look, it's one thing for Jay Street to um, disagree with us on policy issues. It's another thing when we have right wing politicians or conservative you know centrist politicians who are go to guides for us, and next thing we know, another member of the Conference of Presidents is backing somebody to defeat our guy. Right? We don't, and when, you know, we don't do, we don't do elections. We don't run PACs. You, you're going to, you know, so it, 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 there was an element to this that I think, um, you know, worried some people. I think your question, I mean, it's an interesting thing about J Street. There have been some lawmakers who sort of try, have tried to straddle J Street and APAC, um, and it's kind of half empty. Not to too well.
0: It, I haven't seen it done no, too, no, too
1: well. And, and the reality is on some levels, it, it's, in some levels, they're not so different. Right, like in the sense that, it, you know, it, depending on what the... If it, if Cheney Street were up there saying, APAC doesn't really support a two-state solution, and, you know, they're very right-wing, I could see some defenders of APAC saying, that's not true at all, you know. But on the flip side is in the deep, both in style and in terms of the details of specific legislation, um, they definitely have fallen out on different... Uh, in different places. I think politics, you know, I think you're right that some politicians are happy to get cover um, from J Street. At the same time, I think that many politicians are sophisticated enough to understand that, you know, APAC, APAC is delivering a certain kind of Jewish constituency. And it's not about left versus center versus right because APAC has. You know all, now, all types of people in its tent, but you're you know with APAC you're getting you know a, you know a certain um, level of networked people, people who are um, political donors, people who are very active in in, in key communal institutions, and you know it it, it it may be nice to get a J Street stamp of approval to show that you have some sort of Jewish backing, but it doesn't replace what APAC is. You know, it's not, you know, for, and for people in the, you know, for a certain group of people in the know, you know, it, you know, it's not, it it, it doesn't mean much. And, and let's face it, in this case, you're not talking about actual votes, right? The, the APAC's power and APAC's influence is not that it delivers, it, it's seen as delivering a lot of actual ballots. You know, it, it has
0: to do it depends with... depends on the district, you know, with, but I agree with that.
1: Right. So... But yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely, the fact that J Street wants to be a player on the Hill and in the White House is also part of the reason why their presence, their attempt to get in the Conference of Presidents has rankled some. Because even if they had, everything I, I stand by everything I said about their behavior, but let's say they were total mensches and they didn't do, they weren't seen as doing personal attacks or, you know, having short elbows. the very fact that they would try to be an active player on the Hill and really lobby against specific apac backed initiatives, that alone would be enough to have some groups say, you know, no way. And look, when ZOA has fought APAC stuff in the past, especially in the 90s when it started during Oslo, and I believe it was Senator Spector had a bill about... um, you know, making Palestinian authority funding contingent on certain things. You know there were a lot of people in the APAC realm who were very upset that the VOA would take to the hill um, and, and 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 lobby essentially against APAC, because there was this sort of feeling like APAC represents the consensus community on that you know, essentially what the Conference of Presidents in New York, APAC represents that in Washington, and it's dangerous and will hurt us in the long run if we're seen as having multiple voices because just what you said it allows, you know, oh, I don't disagree. If I'm on the right, I can go to ZOA and I don't have to listen to APAC and I can get covered there. No, I can run and get covered from J Street over there. And now suddenly you'll weaken our ability because anybody can find somebody with a Jewish organization with a Jewish a Jew, the word Jewish in its name to back whatever they want. And that will ultimately weaken us. And that's so that's been a that's been a tension in a fight that's been going on. Um, But I'm not sure there's any left-wing group that has, you know, done it as effectively as J Street, which, again, is partially why many were, you know, feeling threatened and uh, and really fighting the idea of giving them that kind of stamp of approval from the conference, because what does it mean now if J Street can go to the Hill and say, oh, like, we're not just a bunch of strange lefties. We're in the conference of presidents. We're, you know, we're a serious Jewish organization, And you can, you know, you should be listening to us when we disagree with APAC or with some other
0: humanly consensus position. Sure. So we'll have to leave the analysis of J Street's effectiveness, and I... I Actually, is a good topic for a future discussion as far as what makes an effective Jewish organization. So, Ami, um, I'd like to invite you back for another segment uh, as we do it. But it's been very enlightening your inside analysis of uh, the Jewish organizational world, particularly the major Jewish organizations. So, Ami Eden from the JTA, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. And I just wanted you to know that we did invite a representative for a press contact from J Street onto the show to have them here, and they declined. Uh, an interview. So perhaps, uh, not sure. Maybe they feel that, uh, we're too right wing sitting here. But, uh, who knows? I'm Eden from the JTA. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class.
1: Thank you. You well.
0: This is Spin Class sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. And I have the pleasure of welcoming Farley Weiss, who is the president of the National Council of Young Israel, also the president of the Young Israel of Phoenix, Arizona. And, he is also at the law firm of Weiss and Moy Intellectual Property Law Firm with its main office in Scottsdale, Arizona, established over 30 years ago, and he specializes in trademark and copyright law. But more importantly, Farley wrote an op-ed in the Jerusalem Post about why J Street's membership application and rejecting it was the right decision for the Jews. Farley, welcome to Spin Class.
2: Michael, good to be here.
0: So, Farley, just uh, let's get into it. You are a President's Conference member. You are a president of a major American Jewish organization. This came before you, and we had our previous guest, Ami Eden, on, who talked about why many were upset that Jay Street was rejected, even if they disagree with their politics. They deserved a seat at the table as a organization that has proved that it has membership message and uh, I guess, effectiveness, why did you feel that they were not uh, ripe for membership in the President's Conference?
2: Yes, what I wrote in the Jerusalem Post, I think, is to try to say that there, there needs to be standards for people coming to the Conference of Presidents. And the standards that I think should be set is, will they be there for Israel in their time, where there's security, where, where their, their things are, are vital, Will they step up in the, in, in the important times? And when a Goldstone report comes out that is full of lies and slander uh, against Israel, and 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 the uh, J Street uh, didn't condemn it, unlike the American administration condemned it. Congress, Senate condemned it, and Goldstone himself ended up, uh, in essence, retracting his own support for his own report. That's right. But J Street did not. And um, when a UN resolution is critical of Israel, and J Street. Ad- advises the administration to not veto it, uh, which the administration fortunately did do, they did veto it, but they advised them not to veto it. Uh, that, that's just not, these are these are things beyond the pale of what could be accepted within the conference.
0: So it's for you, it's a, it's a consensus that there has to be a baseline for membership. If you want to be an American Jewish organization, you have to kind of give a, even if you're not going to be as, right wing or as I'm sorry, I I should say as pro Israel as some others, but you you can't go ahead and step outside the tent, if you will. Um is it is it partly that they're they've been very effective at talking with a different voice and that they've having that voice? Because there are others within the President's conference, like Americans for Peace Now that notice and there are some other, let's say, organizations of the left that probably espouse similar policies. Are there not?
2: No, I don't think there's anyone who espouses the similar views that uh Americans are peace now that come did not say the Goldstone port was acceptable to them, uh did not try to arrange for meetings in Congress with, with Judge Goldstone. They did not uh they did not say that uh um that the uh I mean the other issues that I discussed before in the are in the article. They did not go and say the United States should not veto a UN resolution critical of Israel. Um when Israel went into Gaza and J Street was telling uh them to uh uh, to get out um, and the Obama administration supported Israel and Gaza and so did the Conference of Presidents and the right to defend their uh, uh, their civilians from being hit by missiles. Uh, J Street wasn't there for Israel. These, these are the these are the most critical issues that have come up since J Street was founded and uh, in essence they've been on the wrong side of every issue and to my knowledge no one else in the Conference of Presidents took J Street's position. So they were really by themselves and when people talk about a big tent they, none of them give any standards for it, as if you could have any position. And as I wrote in the article, the jury said, I don't care how many members they have, they would not be welcome in the Conference of Presidents. That there is standards we have, and we have to have standards, and they want, in essence, no standards. None of them have advocated for a big tent of given any standards that should be accepted, just as if you have enough numbers, you should be allowed in.
0: So I think you're making an excellent point. We're talking to Farley Weiss, the president of the National Council of Young Israel, a membership organization of, uh, how many synagogues around the country?
2: Uh, about uh, 130.
0: 130 synagogues around the United States and Canada. There might be some. Uh, and actually amazing. around the world. But, uh, but within, uh, 130 within the U.S. And Farley is telling us that the there has to be a, a standard. So when, when the reform movement says, well, I don't know, maybe the president's conference has outlaw, has outlived their usefulness because they can't, really don't represent a consensus anymore. They, they're rejecting an organization that has, uh, some constituency and possibly more than some of the orga- other organizations. Uh, what, what do you say to that? Is it, is, is it, what constitutes uh, who, who is making these rules within the President's Conference that, that are out there? And, you know, to me, I, they, they, they make sense. They're good rules, and I understand what your your quest for a baseline, but there seem to be some of the partners that you sit with amongst the 50 organizations that disagree with this assessment.
2: Look, at Americans for Peace now got in on a fairly overwhelming vote, I believe. Uh, they didn't have some of these other criteria and problems. And the same rules applied to them. AEPI got in at a uh just recently the latest member, I think it was unanimous with them coming in. Uh it's very rare for the conference to reject anybody. And uh and it's just uh and the same rules have applied all along. They didn't complain about the rules leading up to the vote. Um, if they had a problem with them, they could have complained about it beforehand. But uh the uh the report and I think the forward try to do analysis of who was opposed and who was in favor. And this view that somehow the major organizations were all in favor of J Street, based on that report, it shows to be a fallacy that a lot of major organizations opposed J Street. They just didn't do so publicly.
0: Uh, the secret and ballot. The uh, uh,
2: well, yeah, but they figured out who voted in favor, so it's obvious who voted against. So it's uh, obvious who,
0: who opposed them. Well, the the one thing that's destructive here is they didn't even get a simple majority. They needed two thirds, and they didn't even get a majority. So clearly, there were a lot of organizations, even smaller ones, even those that are not right wing, that were not on their side. So just by simple, by virtue of simple math, but but just just and oh, go ahead.
2: Not just that, just the thing is is that not, not only did they not get a majority, many who voted for them, including the heads of the conservative movement and the ADL, uh, outwardly said they said some terrible things as, as a spokesman. Uh, said just when Kerry made his, Secretary Kerry made his remark about Israel becoming an apartheid state, he said Secretary Kerry ended up retracting that remark, but J Street, uh, uh, wouldn't condemn it and, uh, condone the remark and thought it was fine for what Secretary Kerry said. So it was like both Kerry and Goldstone, uh, they both retracted their statements, but J Street supported their original statements. That, that already shows bad judgment as well.
0: No question about that. And one thing I asked, on um, me earlier w- was the attack that they made when after losing the vote, instead of attacking the president's conference or those who voted against them and the like, and there's no reason necessarily they had to attack anybody. Uh, you can be upset, but you can be classy in, in, in defeat, but they went after Malcolm Homeland, which, uh, in a pretty personal way, it seemed to me. Uh, and w- w- do they, is their opponent Malcolm Holmine? Is is that is that the person that they look at as saying, well, we have to neutralize Malcolm Holmine? Did they make this too personal about Malcolm?
2: That wasn't about Malcolm. It had very little to do with Malcolm. It was uh, the fact that the, uh, many of the major, most significant organizations in the conference, and a, and a, and a majority of the conference, uh, did not support J Street. And... Uh, and so and, and I think that to my knowledge uh, Malcolm kept everything uh, his views quiet about the issue and wasn't involved with uh, uh, with efforts either way on the on the matter
0: so did they just um, get wasn't it wrong
2: the meeting to my knowledge or anything
0: was they what did he just they just get it wrong or was this a political motivation behind the criticism of him because that's what strikes me is that from all accounts that you heard he kept quiet and he was you know and clearly I, I think a lot of people are aware of his Personal views and his strong uh, advocacy on behalf of Israel, but I think, but on this vote, it seemed that he wasn't, you know, meddling, if you will. But yet they decided that he was the enemy. Is he, is- Look
2: at it. I, I think that it's, I, 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 I think the opposition, those who favor J Street, have behaved very poorly since the vote, including J Street themselves. The fact that they could uh, behave this way afterwards, and I think the people who supported J Street have not acted uh, really with the maturity that they should show. Um, This was a system. This was how things were decided. They were fine with the system for many, many years, part of the conference for many years. And somehow, when the vote doesn't go their way, um, that they they react with anger. And uh, I think it's inappropriate.
0: We're talking to Farley Weiss here on SPIN Class, sponsored by BeckermanPR.com. So Farley, just from a general perspective, forget about J Street for a second. Uh, how is it that you have all these organizations—some uh, major, some minor, some have strong constituencies, some not so strong constituencies—working together or sitting together and achieving consensus? Uh, and you know, is there in fact a consensus? Does that actually happen? give, give us some insight. And uh, what does an organization like Young Israel do when the consensus is not? in In a way that young Israel wants it to be,
2: look well, at first of all, if things aren't exactly as we want it to be, and we have our own views that we can express as a, as an organization, but uh, we try to uh, talk to other members of the conference privately to try to persuade them to our view and, uh, and we act in a mature, responsible fashion as it uh, relates to how these organizations, what you have to remember is this: conference council president is—is uh, it 40 years old um, or more? 60? Is it 50, 60 years old? 60 years old. It's a long, long time. Some some of these organizations were big at one time, and so they got in at that time, and then they became small over time. So they say, "Oh, they're small organizations," because once you're in, you're in. So um, so they've been able to stay in, and uh, so the National Council in Israel, I think, is one of the 10, the 15 biggest of all the Conference of Presidents organizations. So um, so probably half the organizations are of significant size and the other half are not.
0: Interesting. And from an Orthodox perspective as an Orthodox organization, is there a piece missing from the American Jewish consensus by not having the Haredi organizations as part of as part of the conference? That they don't participate, you're, not, you're missing that uh, that piece, that constituency entirely.
2: Well, I'm not sure that so many issues come up that would really uh, that, that 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 have to deal with in essence the orthodoxy that is such a uh, a issue in the sense of well, we don't have enough orthodox. But I I, I prefer more. I prefer that the uh, Guru would join the Conference of Presidents and uh, and that other organizations would join like that. Um, I think it's helpful for the conference to hear if uh, Chabad would become a member as well. I think that would be great for the conference. Uh, I, I think it, it hurts us. We have, I think, there's as many votes for the reform as there is in the Orthodox in the conference president, And so it would be nice if we had more that would join and be part of it because they could help influence it, I think, in a better direction.
0: Well, the reform might counter and say, if you look at population surveys, they're far more numerous than than the Orthodox are, the Orthodox being but 10% of of American Jewry and reform being thirty-five or forty percent depending on which survey you follow. So uh is it is it not is it not weighted appropriately these days?
2: I I, dis- I disagree with the general judgment of that uh oh, please that do they're, they're That's counting good. in essence every Jew that is not uh, that is not conservative or orthodox as being reform to try to come up with those figures. And uh you know most Jews who are involved themselves politically are politically active are in essence pretty much aligned with the APAC view on Israel, and support the APAC view. And it's seen by the numbers the second the second biggest crowd of congressmen and senators in the, in the United States to get together a year is at the APAC conference. The first is the State of the Union address, and the second is APAC, and it's 14,000 people there. And this is really represents American jury's view on Israel and their caring. and um, and so if some people who are reformed don't have the same view or some of the leaders of the reformed don't have the same view, but the rank and file Jews that care about Israel, that care to be involved in politics, they, they that is why on uh, I tell people the if if the Obama administration does things that people feel are a problem on Israel, it's the oh pretty much the only issue that the leaders of the Democratic Party will publicly disagree with their president is on when it comes to issues of Israel. And uh, because of the that this is an issue that is a consensus in the Jewish community, and Jay Street is really outside that consensus.
0: Farley Weiss, the president of the National Council of Young Israel, president of the Young Israel of Phoenix, Arizona, lawyer out in Arizona. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Hope to have you again uh, in the very near future.
2: Michael, it would be great to have. By the way, just one correction. I was the president of the youngest Israel Phoenix uh, nine years I was president, but no longer. I'm just doing the National Council. is enough for me.
0: Uh, okay. Well, you know, we'll have to correct that on the Internet because it's still floating out there, the view as the youngest old Phoenix. But thank you for the correction. Hopefully the current president won't be too perturbed by that. <laughs>
2: Hopefully not. Thank
0: you. <laughs> but who wants to be a synagogue way. president anyway these days? I mean, that's uh, – anyway, Farley Weiss, thanks again for joining us here on Spent Glass. Thank you, Michael. And uh, just as a postscript to this, bringing it back to New York politics as we do, because we didn't really discuss New York enough on this show this week, uh, very interesting, goes back uh, quite a few months ago, right in the nascent days of the de Blasio administration. Bill de Blasio, back in January, goes to speak at the APAC Northeast dinner. And remember the kerfuffle that it was closed to press. It was on his public schedule. The press weren't allowed to in, but somebody snuck. A recording and then it made it out there and there was a whole brouhaha about the fact that he spoke and gave a major speech to APAC where he said, APAC can find a home with me and so on. And the press was upset because they weren't permitted in. It was a press he promised to be open and of course when the press gets upset that all kinds of things happen. To different politicians, but we find out through a bunch of foil requests afterward that not only was there a backlash from the press and the fact that from certain quarters, the fact that he spoke to APAC, but certain politicians, especially one State Senator Liz Kruger from the Upper East Side, uh, Liz Kruger, a, a prominent liberal, talks uh, and sends an email to the Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, Emma Wolfe, in which she says... That I'm actually getting as many angry messages from non-APAC folks, pro-Israel, J Street, and Peace Now supporters than I did on the east side snow problems. I think BDB, meaning Bill de Blasio, needs a broader education on New York-Israel issues to avoid future blow-ups. And Wolf, Emma Wolf, the Director of Intergovernmental Affairs for... Mayor de Blasio, says, yup, we are trying to figure it out. So not only were they defensive with regard to the press not being invited in and the fact he didn't walk back the fact that City Hall will always be open to APAC, but his aides were trying to mollify the Jewish left here in New York by saying, oh, he needs to be educated because there are all kinds of dynamics here. There are a lot of people who aren't. Quite is supportive of APAC. They aren't, might not be quite as supportive of Israel. And we have to be careful that Bill de Blasio doesn't go ahead and offend a whole segment of the Jewish community by saying that APAC will be, uh, the city hall will be open to APAC. And, you know, he didn't say anything so bad. When you want me to stand by you in Washington and elsewhere, I will answer the call and answer it happily. That's nice. That's nice to say I have an open tent. I have an open door for people. But that really rankled some feathers, especially one state senator, Liz Krueger. So I want to end today just to talk about the fact that this morning was the 9-11 Museum, Memorial Museum dedication, uh, which I was invited to and went to the dedication this morning. President Obama spoke. Uh, Governor Pataki, Governor Christie, Governor Cuomo, Mayor Bloomberg and Mayor de Blasio it was quite moving and uh, the museum is quite excellent i would strongly recommend people going there at the first opportunity uh is something we uh as one who was there i will tell you i don't i don't forget about things that happened but it's uh, really incredible to see all everything that happened but on this show we tend to you know make fun and poke fun at uh, people in public service we poke fun at politicians we go ahead and make sport of the the sport of politics and uh, in good fun and good nature. And I I have to say, you know, we also point out a knucklehead of the week, which I'm not going to do this week because I want to point out that really people are out there. We're fighting for an ideal here, an ideal that is America, a great country. And on 9-11, we were attacked because we're Americans, only because we're Americans, because America stands for something in the world. And it's viewed as a beacon of freedom and a beacon of democracy and a beacon of liberty. And that's important. And I want to say that when Democrats and Republicans come together to talk about that, to commemorate that, we, we have different viewpoints on everything. But when it comes down to it, we are all Americans. And we all really believe in an ideal in a great place that is this country. That's been a great place for the Jewish people as well. And I think it's so important to remember that. Day in and day out, every single day, that we should think about the fact how lucky we are to live in this great country and how devastating it was that day in 2001, September 11th, at where this country was attacked like it never was before. And it's, it's really something that we should take pause and think about, even on a show that we tend to expose some of the flaws and some of the not-so-great things of the political world, of the public service world I want everybody to just, you know, take a moment to think about that and to think about not only those that were lost, uh, and it's, it's just devastating to look at all these pictures, those pictures and to look at all the names and to remember many, many people, some of whom I, I knew, knew, and knew personally. It's, uh, it's so, so important to keep that in mind that, uh, not only that, but not the, but the fact that we were attacked. Because America is a great country. So, another Thursday night in the hopper. And I want to thank you all for listening here on Spin Class on the Nachum Siegel Network, com, JM in the AM.org.